Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, where this week I'm joined by author and historian Patricia O'Sullivan to talk about the early years of fire services in the city. Hong Kong's fire services have just marked their first 150 years. In the initial years, the fire services were run by volunteers and the water was often pumped from the harbour. Early warning systems included a series of bells across the territory. Patricia O'Sullivan is the author of Policing Hong Kong, an Irish history, Irishman in the Hong Kong Police Force, 1864 to 1950. One of the first things that happened in Hong Kong in terms of the British, the European occupation of it, was that insurance firms came along because if there's a risk there's something to insure and of course insurance firms actually don't want to pay out so very quickly insurance firms are quite keen on putting out the fires but from about 1841 through to 1856 or thereabouts there are various fire brigades because not only are the ones from the insurance firms but all around the docks which is in terms of the value of the goods stocked is the most important area of the early Hong Kong. The dock owners have their own means of dealing with fires so they were importing small manual fire engines quite early on. Then I think really importantly is that the Chinese communities have their own fire services, fire brigades so these will be run and owned by the, the different guilds, the, the silk weavers guilds. There's the Nampak Hong Association, which was like a mutual association of many different dealers in Chinese goods. And they too have a fire engine, a manual fire engine. When we're talking about fire engines, we're not talking about these great things that roll down the streets. We're talking about uh, basically a cart on wheels that will be able to have a long hose and pump pump water from probably from the harbour at this stage, or any water course they can get to, to put a fire out. I was going to say, in the go-downs, I mean, that was very high risk, wasn't it, in a sense? You've got all of your... I mean, companies could surely go bust. Yeah, they could, very easily. And it's not infrequently that you find there's a fire where £20,000, £40,000 worth of damage has been done in a matter of a couple of hours. So, yeah, it's very high risk. There is really... Right from the early period, these three lines of defence. But I think what's quite interesting is that the Chinese one, the traditional Chinese one, which was a feature of urban Chinese communities anyhow, is much more like the fire brigade as we would think of it now. Because, of course, the insurance firms and the dock dock owners weren't actually that concerned with saving lives. They want to save property, they want to save money, but the community ones, the Chinese ones were, certainly. So they would have, they would actually have ladders and things like this, quite often. So, by about 1856, it's really coming to the attention of the governor and the administration, and there's increasing dissatisfaction amongst the merchants about the level of protection. You know, protection is therefore very scrappy. If you happen to be near an insurance firm, you might get your fire put out. <laughs> and the government is also quite concerned about the, the possibility of arson, because it's still a very uncertain time, and there's a lot of military and naval activity going on. And the idea that those opposed to British rule can come in and set fire to vast swathes of the town is worrying to say the least. The other thing you need to remember early 1850s, 1853 I think the colonial surgeon estimated the population to be about 39,000 which is minute. There was about 37,000 Chinese people 
1,200 or so of other races, you know, Indians and people from other parts of Southeast Asia, and 500, 600 Europeans, Americans, whatever. So it's a very small community. And so when they start lobbying the governor, who knows who's lobbying him? But we have a police force at this time, a very small police force, but it is a police force, which is almost entirely made up of Europeans and Indians, with Chinese just using the water police. Why isn't there anything more formal like the police force? Why isn't there a fire brigade like that? So part of the reason is because of the size, but the other reason is it's also not the norm. I mean, the first fire brigade in the United Kingdom was in Edinburgh in 1823, but then there wasn't another one, really, not a municipal fire brigade, till about early 1860s in London, when the London Fire Brigade started. So it's really quite late. It really is, yeah. So why is that? Is that because of a lack of design of equipment or just everybody has to solve their own fires? There isn't that community, well, not spirit as such, but just, just well, community wealth, maybe, even to put it together? Well, it's that. It's partly because the state hasn't taken responsibility for these things. It's not seen as the state's responsibility. It's still left in the hands of the insurance companies in the UK. There were a few sort of mutual village setups to, to deal with fires. But so with the insurance companies, it would be that they would have their own brigade? They would, yeah, to lesser or greater degrees, depending on the size of the conurbation that they're working in, really. So it's quite a new idea, but communication via newspapers was such that people were aware that there were fire brigades. It was a possibility now, and the firefighting equipment has been around for ages. So fire engines, which are steam engines, pumping engines, basically, pumping water, are around for the beginning of the century, certainly in, in regular production. Fire hydrants, fire extinguishers have been all been invented. All these things exist, so it's only a matter of just bringing them together and putting them under municipal control. So if we go back to the middle of the 19th century, was Hong Kong regularly on fire in go-downs or in close living quarters? And also, I mean, what were people using for fuel anyway? It was regularly on fire, and it becomes even more regularly on fire when they start using kerosene, because that was so inflammable. And the number of fires that have caused, certainly in the 19th century, and I guess right until well through the 20th century, by kerosene lamps falling over. It's being used as light very often, as well as fuel. When I think about Hong Kong fires, I know there was one around 1870 or so that was quite massive, just above central. I also think of the 1918 tragedy at uh, Hong Kong Racecourse, as in Happy Valley, where about 600 people died when a, a matchhead went down, probably again caused by some form of cooking and fire related to that. But, as you say... There were plenty of fires going on. So if I go back to the 1850s, was there a couple of major ones around that time? One that really was a catalyst about that time was one in Queen's Road in Western Market. It happened in February of 1856 when the fire very quickly it started in the market, crossed the road, and it was burning for quite a few hours uncontrolled. But 
the response was from the whole community, really. So the military, the navy, the police, government, government officials, even a, a Spanish steamer that was in harbour sent a detachment of sailors in to help deal with it. So they managed to get it controlled so it wasn't running laterally along Queen's Road anymore, but they were very concerned that it was going to go up into Taiping Shan. It burnt until well into the morning, and it was reckoned that about £100,000 of damage was done. They'd had all the privately owned steam engines that were in Hong Kong out there dealing with this. So, you know, the P&O had a couple of steam engines. Dents, the bank, had a steam engine. All, as I say, portable manual things that ran along and then pumped from the harbour for the water. So then a deputation of respectable gentlemen arrive at the governor's residence and are saying, what can we do about this? What, what can be done? The response is... It's all about, I mean, he's, he's thinking about how to get better policing in the colony at the same time. So he invites these respectable gentlemen, and I'm not sure whether it's both Chinese and European, I suspect it may, may well be, to become special constables. And from that pool of special constables, they are to form a fire brigade, which will have some authority from the government. So that is in 1856. So it's not a government fire brigade, but it is an official one. And there's an ordinance of 18... 57, which effectively recognises this volunteer force. They also start to take seriously the whole issue of fire prevention in Hong Kong. So there are edicts to the Chinese population that they should have tubs of water ready with a couple of buckets. They should check any unoccupied building that they know of. And if there is a fire, they should attempt to put it out, then raise the alarm... And having raised the alarm, stay where they are with their property, to protect their property, and then a constable will be delegated to take them to a place of safety with their valuables. Yeah, it sounds really patronising to the Chinese population, but that is where the majority of the fires were happening, and in the European houses, which of course weren't quite so densely packed together there was much less chance of a spread of fire. And even in this point, 37,000 people, a lot of whom are crushed together in a small space, fire spreads very quickly in wooden-built buildings. It's the early days, trying to manage the population, ensure safety of houses, safety of property, safety of people, and depending on who you were, in what order. I mean, if you, as you say, were one of these community fire brigades within the Chinese guilds, then it was all about people. But uh, if you're an insurance company, then it was about property and saving that property, probably in the go-downs among other business areas. And I should think once a fire really took hold, if you're trying to pump them with the water up from the sea <laughs> or the nearest nullar, then I don't know how effective it would have been. Yeah, that's always a problem. So, especially with these hand pumps, you've got a very long hose, quite potentially, coming from the prior, from the waterfront, through to Queen's Road. It's already going up an incline, and the level of pumping that has to go on to get the water travelling up is, is pretty hard work. So there was very much the idea that actually it would be really useful to have a steam engine, a proper steam engine. The P&O have a medium-sized steam engine at this point, so they're seeing that actually they will work quite efficiently, and they can get water up to Queen's Road. 
Queen's Road was virtually next to the waterfront at this point. That's right, it's one road in, and it's running parallel to the waterfront, the prior, as it was called. So, by 1868, this volunteer fire brigade has been operating for 11 years, and MacDonald, the then governor, is under pressure again to have a more organised response. So, the population has increased to about 120,000 by this point. So, there has been a really threefold increase in the population, and the volunteer force is really stretched. So he goes to the insurance firms to try and G them up to have a, a regular fire brigade, but they're not interested. But he finds a lot of interest from the Chinese community, especially the Chinese merchant community, to the extent that a group of merchants put up the money for the importation of a fire engine from the UK, quite a significant amount of money. And this is sort of an early example of matched funding. So he goes to the Secretary of State for the Colonies and said, well, we want two, but we've already got the money for one, so don't be churlish and say that we can't put another one on our budget. The Chinese community also offer any number of coolie labour to man and to move the steam engine when it comes but Macdonald decides that he wants a properly paid force he wants a force that will be under discipline in the same way as the police are so he's thinking of using the police and paying them an extra allowance and then as far as possible using volunteers from the Chinese working community when their employers will allow them to be part of the force and then they too will be paid an allowance and both the European policemen and the Chinese volunteers will have a uniform for their duties and will receive some drill and training in how to use the steam engines and how to fight fires. In 1868 there was another ordinance passed which provided for men from the police and the superintendent of the fire brigade takes command of the volunteer forces they are allowed to break down, blow up or destroy anything that is in the way and will allow fires to spread. We're often told, you know, in the early times, the idea was if you want to stop a fire, you blow a building up. Well, yes, they had to sometimes at this point. It was all paid for by a rate that was not to exceed three-quarters of a cent of the rateable value of properties. So that was put on to the public to pay for it. But as I say, a large number of the Chinese community were supportive of this, so that was not a particularly big issue. The orders for the Merryweather fire engines are put in in hand, but a few months down the line, the governor starts to get worried, and he has representation from his auditor, who is saying, well, this fire engine that's been ordered is the biggest. I know we wanted the biggest and best, <laughs> but P&O have one of the medium-sized fire engines, and it's, it's breaking up the prior road. What, too heavy? Yeah, so it's just sort of churning up the road. It can't be moved. And if we've got a, a big one... It's going to be even worse. Charles May, who is a magistrate at the time and who's been put in charge of the fire brigade, he he might be able to organise the men and that sort of thing, but he doesn't know too much about machinery, I I think. By this time, it's already on its way. It's on its way. It's been shipped. Merryweathers are asked to provide a slightly smaller one for the second fire engine, but nevertheless, this big one comes into Hong Kong and has to sit stationary at a central point near the central fire station which is join of Wellington Road and Queens Road. We start to see sort of lists of where the different manual engines are around Hong Kong Island and a system of bells starts to raise the alarm. 
So there are bells put at the harbour master's office, the central police station, central fire station, obviously, one to other points. And if the fire has broken out anywhere to the east of Murray Barracks, so that's basically one try, they have one stroke of the bell going on. If it's between Murray Barracks and the harbour master's office, they have two strokes. And anywhere out from the harbour master's office out to the west, towards Kennedy Town, there'll be three strokes. Meaning, so, so what's the warning to whom? The warning is the alert so that the firemen know where they're heading. So if it's just a ding ding Yes, yeah, that's, yeah, that's okay. Get over to the east. Get get okay. uh, the other side of the military barracks. Get, get over to one track because it's somewhere over there, and you, you you get your location thereafter. But it's a basic warning system. However, the bells can't be heard very well, so that's a bit of a problem. So they order a number of four hundred pound bells from the UK. So they must have been quite significant bells. And they would be just in towers on a street corner? Or? Well, they, they are mounted. One is mounted on the central police station, one at the harbour master's office, one at the clock tower. Do any of them still exist? I don't know. I'd love to know. They're big bells. So they tried this match funding with these... Well, first of all, this massive fire engine. So was it just ever used or was it just a display item no the fire engine was 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 used certainly but it just had to sit there and pump up water Ah. from from the harbour and then hoses were attached which took the water to wherever else now you then have a sort of relay system so you can get it up to so far you get it up to queen's road and then you'll need another little engine to then pump that from there up maybe up a couple of streets further so you've got a, a relay of, of engines delivering the water, especially if it's up any distance up the hill. Into the 1870s, there are a couple of very big fire-related events. One is the typhoon in 1874, which was a devastating typhoon. Well over 2,000 lives were lost, and it was said that 96% of buildings were damaged in that. Very, very severe, of course. It was the worst that had been experienced. And very controversially, the captain superintendent of the police ordered all his men to stay in barracks. He was too scared that he would lose men in the typhoon. Because the police were in barracks, that effectively meant that the fire service was limited to the volunteer parts of the fire brigade, which still existed, who had no organisation, not necessarily the authority to get the engines out if they could. So in the aftermath of the typhoon, many fires started, and although as it abated, yes, the the police were out and, and normal service was resumed, as it were, but a lot of damage was done and the whole community were very much up in arms about this. Then, just four years later, we have, of course, a Christmas day, then Christmas night, the Great Fire of Hong Kong, which covered about 10 acres of central Hong Kong, did well over a million dollars' worth of damage and made thousands of people homeless. It started on the night of going into Christmas Day, so it's a time when a lot of the European community had been out celebrating, but the response was from the entire community, and everybody turned out, and the military and the navy and the police and all the fire services were there. But the fires 
continued for 60 hours before they were fully put out. So by the 1880s, there are a number of fire stations around Hong Kong at Western and Wan Chai and the central one at number five police station. And equipment is put around the town in quite a lot of different places. So they have the three steam engines and a manual one at the central police station. But the harbour office, the other fire stations, central police station, the market, Aberdeen, the hospital, government house, they all have their manual fire engines. So along comes Governor Pope Hennessy, who did manage to stir things up quite regularly. So he wants to make various reforms, and he starts by getting rid of that clause in the earlier ordinance, which punished people for not cooperating with the head of the fire brigade. That goes, especially since it talked about fining Europeans and lashing Chinese. And the other significant thing he wanted to do was to have the superintendent of the fire brigade and the engineer recruited from the London Fire Service and he wanted trained men to come in and take on full-time positions. Because at the moment, all the men who are in the fire service are effectively doing another job as well. So the superintendent might be the head of the police force, he might be the magistrate, the engineer might be working for the public works department or might be assistant harbour master or something like this. Actually, quite often the engineer was the engineer from the naval dockyard. The engine drivers, the foremen, the assistant foremen, the firemen were all police constables, whether European or Chinese. There's a couple of Chinese engine drivers who are full-time engine drivers and a few Chinese who are full-time as stokers. The engine driver was responsible for bringing the engine out, in, in the case of those that could be moved, to the scene of the fire and operating that. Whereas the foreman would normally be sort of more senior constables or sergeants in the police force, had the responsibility for organising the whole operation. They had to know all the water courses. They had to know where the hydrants were, where the water plugs were in terms of getting fresh water, sometimes You couldn't use water from the harbour, you simply couldn't bring it up. So fresh water from the main sources had to be used. They then had to know the spread of the fire and assess the likelihood of the the fire jumping from building to building and then deploy the men. So theirs was a responsible position. Moving gradually into the 20th century. The main reason for fires is still generally kerosene, I mean for for serious fires that is fires with which cause damage of over $10,000 but what I was quite interested in that the the number of times the fire brigade will be called out is is relatively small, it's not every week, sort of quite often it's about 40 times a year there may be 60 or so fires, but a, a lot of those are just incipient fires which get put out by the local population before the brigade needs to be called out. In some places, local people have access to some of the firefighting equipment. There had been, right from early period, fire boxes put in some shops and things like this so that they were able to connect it up to the fire hydrant and access the water. 1900 brings brings along one thing I would love to see, which is a quadricycle, a four-man bicycle, which 
was go- thought that it was going to be exceedingly useful because um, men would be four firemen could go off with a dispatch box and 600 foot of hose and various appliances and cycle up to wherever was needed in, in very swift time indeed. So they actually brought in quadricycles to Hong Kong. Mm. It's a bit slow, though. I suppose everything was a bit slow. Uh, it's a bit fast for the bit fast for that time. I mean, the steam launch, the, the the floating fire engine, it can go at eight knots, which is about nine miles an hour, which is good. Furious driving is ten miles an hour. So we're moving into the twentieth century, and we st- start to see different equipment coming through, apart from the quadricycles. So to add to such things as the reinforced ladders and um, jumping sheets. We now have a telescopic fire escape that can reach up to 60 foot. Buildings are getting taller at this point, so it is ever more important to be able to reach the upper levels. And then in 1906, there is yet another very serious typhoon, of course. And for the fire brigade, the particular reason to note that is that it actually sunk the floating fire engine. Floating fire engine, this is the engine that had been commissioned in 1864. So the engine itself is quite old. It's been maintained. And amazingly, having been sunk, it was recovered. The boat had to be rebuilt, but the engine, once it had been cleaned out, was was functional again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Impressive. Hmm. Uh, generally speaking, the, the, the fire engines they had, and by this time they've got about five, they have a, a very long life. They're, they're obviously well-maintained, they're, but they're not in daily use. For example, in 1907, the br- brigade turned out 56 times during the year. In 1910, it turned out just 33 times. 1911 turned out 45 times. So, so it's not a daily occurrence. And that rather surprised me, although through the early part of the 20th century, this started to increase. When the European war broke out in 1914, initially not a lot of men left Hong Kong because there was the idea that the war was going to be over by Christmas. But as it went on, men in the police force wanted to be released to serve in France and finally more than 70 men would actually go to France which meant there were gaps in the European contingent of the fire brigade and a volunteer force, not only European but with Chinese and Portuguese, was formed as part of the fire brigade and it proved very effective Now you've mentioned how there was a a ding, ding or a a ding, 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 depending on you know, with these uh, 400 pound bells in in various positions on Hong Kong Island to alert the uh, early fire services in what direction they should try and be and then they would refine it to exactly where the fire was happening. But in terms of warning the public or fire alarms for the public, when are they brought to Hong Kong or even invented in Hong Kong? I believe that the first ones came in the 1900s, so it's another of those 20th century things. Um, there were four in 1900. At the time of writing the superintendent's report, none of them had been used. They were the type where you had to punch through to, to press the button. By 1915, there were 12, so the, the public can alert the fire brigade to an instance of a fire. And thereafter, of course, their use grows. Yeah.
This is the Hong Kong Fire Brigade. It's always been known as the Hong Kong Fire Brigade, but now we've got a, a sense of professionalism. They're actually throwing some proper money at it. So it takes 50 years to go professional. That's right. We're just rather over that, really. And in 1921, the call is put out for a man from the London Fire Brigade. And that is Henry Brooks, who is recruited to become the superintendent of the separate fire brigade. And he has initially 40 full-time trained Chinese firemen working for him. So you have Henry Brooks who comes in from London. And so <coughs> does this now mean that the Hong Kong police force is off, is off the hook? Are they, are they now no longer involved in the Hong Kong fire brigade? That's right. Um, having been for so many years both the fire brigade, the ambulance service in effect, and the police, they can now revert to their original function. Patricia O'Sullivan there, talking on the early years of Hong Kong's fire services. Patricia is the author of Policing Hong Kong, an Irish history, Irishman in the Hong Kong Police Force, 1864 to 1950. Next week, I join publisher and author Gillian Bickley to hear about the life and journal of young American trader George Washington Hurd, who was in China around 1860 and will provide a first-hand account of the Second Opium War. Going back to, to the battle, he witnessed a young man having his head shot off and he himself was only 22, so he doesn't tell us at the time how that affected him. But when he was back in that area a year later... He talks about feeling very depressed, and I infer that that was because he was remembering the scenes of the battle, as you said, the legs and the blood. I don't think he wasn't curious to see legs and blood, but he was curious to see the action, not perhaps taking account in advance of what that action would involve. Gillian Bickley will be joining me next week to talk about Through American Eyes, the journals of George Washington Farley Heard. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>